Well, Father, as your people, it is a joy to come together in celebration and praise of the one true God, the God who has come to our aid, a people in distress, a people lost and wondering, a God who looks down upon his creation and sends a Redeemer to rescue lost souls. We thank you today for your great salvation made possible in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we come today in Christ's name to celebrate your great work of salvation and your continuing work of sanctification in our own lives. And Father, just this past week we have been a people who have to some degree been distracted from the high calling of the Christian life. So many circumstances in everyday life draw us away from our true sense, our true bearing in this present life. And so today, in a a sense, we come for a course correction to refocus upon our real identity as your people and as as your church. And we pray that as we experience the fellowship of your people, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and his comfort and his peace, and the preaching of the word that we might once again be refocused upon who we are in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to that great calling of the redeemed people to be light and salt in this present life, this present world. Father, we live in very critical days as a country. In just a few days, we will gather as a nation in a democratic society and, and cast votes to elect a new president. Father, we realize that on Tuesday, a Wednesday morning of, of the next week, you will not be surprised as to who our president is. And so, Father, we commit the events of this coming week. We commit our nation to you. We pray, Father, that you will give us the president that, that we need. And we pray that you will call this nation back to its true identity, its true roots of a Christian heritage. And, Father, we realize that that work of revival is first to be done in the church. And so we pray, Father, that you will call your people to revival once again. Father, we pray now that as we come to this part of the worship where we give of our monies, we pray that we will give joyfully realizing that all we have comes from you. You own everything. You've just given it to us to use, to be good stewards of these great gifts. And so we give back to you, praying that all that we give will be done and used wisely for the advancement of your kingdom. Finally, bless the preaching of the word and bless this preacher as he stands before these, this great people. Lord, honor the preaching of your word today. We need to hear truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. Our text will begin in verse 10. Genesis 12:10, And it's a rather lengthy text this morning, so you'll have to stay with me. But I have a purpose in reading this um, through Genesis Chapter 13. In fact, I'm going to read the entire chapter of 13. Guys, before I start the uh, reading of the text, let me just tell you a couple of things. Um, Most of you know, maybe you may not know because this is the 930 hour, but I teach a Sunday school class during the 930 hour. And for several weeks now, I've been teaching out of the book of Genesis. And uh, it's just in God's kind providence, I think, that uh, it's now that I have come to these chapters, Genesis 12 and 13, in our schedule on Sunday mornings. And uh, these two chapters have been especially meaningful for me in my life. Uh, 
Uh, as, you, as you know, uh, I made an announcement last Sunday that I've been wrestling with the Lord for some time about our future. And we, Carl and I, feel that the Lord has led us or leading us to the next chapter in ministry. We're not sure where that is. But there is a great issue of faith and trust going on in our own lives currently. We've asked you to pray with us that the Lord would give us clear direction as to what he would have us to do with our lives in the coming years. And so I've come to Genesis 12 and 13, and these two chapters have been especially meaningful to me. And I shared some of what I'm going to share with you this morning. I shared with my Sunday school class last Sunday morning when I shared with them what God is doing in the lives of the hall. So with that, let's begin reading Genesis chapter 12, verses 10, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And he was about to enter Egypt. He said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. 
All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, guys, you know the great story of Abram, the patriarch of Israel. You know, if you have read the preceding chapters leading up to Genesis 11 and 12, that this is Abram, the man who is called out of the land of Ur, of the Chaldees. He's called out of that land of his heritage, his home. And he is commanded to go to a new land, a strange land. And there, that is to be the promised land, the land of Canaan. And upon his arrival in Canaan, if you remember the story, Abram surveys this great promised land from north to south and east to west. And it's interesting that while he is there, during those initial days of his visit of the land of Canaan, that Abram goes to what is, seems to be the sites of pagan worship for the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites were in the land there idol worshipers, and there at particular places like Shechem and at Ai or Bethel, Abram drives down his stakes and he worships the one true God. It's as if Abram is making a statement there in this land, as for me and my house, we're going to worship the true God, even in the midst of pagan idolatry. Not long after Abram arrives in this land of Canaan, the promised land, that famine comes. And then as we picked up reading here in Genesis 12, verse 10, that Abram leaves this land and he goes down to Egypt to escape the famine. He turns to the irrigated fields of Egypt. Now, it's interesting that the text never indicates that Abram sought God's direction as to what he should do or where he should go. Nevertheless, he travels to this land of Egypt It's also interesting that as long as Abram's in Egypt, he never once worships God. At least the text never indicates that Abram worships God while he's in this land. And you know the trouble that Abram gets into while he's there. Relying upon his own self-confidence, Abram deceives Pharaoh. He turns from seeking God's leadership in his life. and, And then as the story goes... Pharaoh discovers that Sarah is really Abram's wife, that Abram has lied to him. And so Pharaoh expels Abram and all the Israelites from the land of Egypt. And while he's there, though, Abram gathers more wealth. He becomes more wealthy and he leaves the land of Egypt and he goes back to Canaan. Now, if you're an Israelite and second or third generation, and you're reading this story that Moses is writing now, you would say to yourself, this sounds kind of familiar. Our forefathers were in the land of Egypt. Abram ran to the land of Egypt during a famine, and there God turns the heart of Pharaoh, and and in God's kind providence, Abram and all of the nation of Israel, this young nation, is expelled from the land of Egypt and they're forced to go back to Canaan. God moves the heart of Pharaoh at the end of chapter 12. 
Now, we come to chapter 13 and verse 4, and the, the phrase that I want to call your attention to this morning is this phrase in 13, verse 4, the second part of verse 4, chapter 13. The text says that Abram called on the name of the Lord. He leaves Egypt, and as soon as he returns to the promised land, to Canaan, he goes back to Bethel, which means the house of the Lord. And there the text says that Abram called on the name of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't believe this was a mere casual worship experience. I think that this is a prodigal call. This is a sincere longing on the part of Abram to restore fellowship with God. And I think that Abram confesses his sins before God and the people. And I think Abram would have said something like this. I've been down to Egypt, and I know there's no worship of God in Egypt. There's no fellowship to be found with God in Egypt. There's no dignity to be found in Egypt. And so now, having restored fellowship with God, Abram returns to a life of dependence upon God. Now, this is where we are here in Genesis 13. Abram has returned to fellowship with God. And my question to you this morning is, where is Abram right now in his life? Where do you think Abram is? Well, I submit to you that Abram is right where God wants him to be. He's right in, as some would say, in the center of God's will. Right where God wants him to be, in intimate fellowship, intimate communion with God. And the very next thing that happens is trouble again. Abram is tested in his faith. The the pressing problems of life come upon him. The land cannot support both Abram and Lot's flocks. Their herds are too large. And so Abram must make a decision. What should we do? So I'm suggesting to you this morning that as Abram returns to fellowship with God, right where God wants him to be, the test of life come again. And Abram's faith is tested once again. And ladies and gentlemen, it's true for us. We can be right where God wants us to be, and yet God will often test our faith because it's His desire to grow us up. And God will test us in the small things of life. And God will test us in the large things of life. Some weeks ago, Carl and I decided it was time to uh, trade cars. We, we don't buy cars a lot, but... So I'll, I'll put a lot of miles on a car, seven, eight years, maybe even ten years. I'll drive a car, and, and uh, we take care of our cars, and then I decide let's sell it and buy something new. So Carla's car, was it's a 97 model, and I said, well, it's, I think it's time we, we sell the car. And I'd maintained the car pretty well. It was in good shape. A few days after that, in fact, it was on a Sunday morning. We were driving uh, home, and... Uh, she said, you know, the car's not acting right. Something's not right about this car. So, and I don't drive her car that much, so I was driving on that Sunday, and so we decided we actually drove a little bit uh, around and went to another place before we went home. And sure enough, the car wasn't running right. In fact, I realized that there's something wrong with this transmission. And now, here's the first thought that came to my mind when I discovered we're having transmission trouble in a car that I'm about to try to sell. In fact, I already made a couple of phone calls to people I knew that knew my car, and, and they, uh, they were interested in the car. 
And now transmission trouble. The first thought that came to my mind was this. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed in one of your pastors. But I said, I got to get rid of this thing. <laughs> this thing's about to cost me some money. And almost immediately, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Are you going to do what's right? Are you going to put this car off on some young college student knowing the transmission is going out in this car? And that week, I took it to uh, Colin, Colin Taylor Transmission. And I spent a couple of thousand dollars and fixed the car. Now, we're still driving it. We decided we need to drive this thing a little longer. But, you know, guys, that's just a common, I mean, that's not unique to the Hall household. You've experienced the very same things in your life where your faith is tested. And God calls you to the high moral ground. And you see, when we make the right decision to do right, you know what we're saying? We're saying to God that I believe you are God and you can be trusted. Just small examples of our faith being tested. Then there are large examples where God tests our faith. You know, I've, you know what happened to Holly recently. Three weeks ago, she got up on a Thursday morning. She was headed out of town to go to Destin with a friend to vacation for a few days. And she got up that morning and she said, you know, Mom, I don't, I don't feel right. She said, the fact I feel like my whole insides are coming out. So she went to the doctor that day, and you know, as this, this diagnosis was, two rather large ovarian cysts were found in Holly. And that was on, a, I think, a Thursday. That Friday afternoon, I went with Holly to see the surgeon. We couldn't get in to see him until, until Friday afternoon. And so we got to the surgeon's office, and I went back with Holly to talk to the surgeon who read the pictures and the CAT scans and... Um, you know, guys, I'm around this kind of stuff a lot. You know, I'm talking about physical problems because I've ministered to many of you who've been in the hospital. And, and I'm fairly optimistic when it comes to things like that. It usually, most of the time, it's not as bad as we initially think it is. And so I went into that surgeon's office, that visit with him, with that attitude. It can't be as bad as we think it is. And as that surgeon sat there and beside in front of us and began to explain to Holly what's going on and what the risks were. And he began to talk about the chance of infertility and we know you're going to lose one ovary and I'm not sure about the other one. There's something on that and the risk of cancer and the risk of this and that. And, and my heart began to sink and I began to pray, Lord, help me to keep my composure. This is my daughter in front of me, and I can't lose it here. She cannot see this sphere that's overcome me, and I don't want her to panic. And I began to pray that the Lord would give me strength, and we left that office that Friday afternoon, and I wasn't too optimistic. We had to wait the long weekend before the surgery on Monday. And the Lord was gracious to us through your prayers and ministry to us. The Lord began to, through His Spirit, administer peace to the Hall household and I think it was Saturday night. We got home from dinner with friends and we uh, gathered in our bedroom and Holly was in the middle of our bed and Carla was on one side and I was on the other and we were about to pray together. And I, I told Holly this. I said, Holly, listen to me. I, I believe this with all my heart. I believe that God will often take us to the very place in life where we trust him the least just to show us that He is God and He can be trusted. 
And I believe that's what's going on in your life right now. You see, you don't know this part of the story, but since Holly was a little girl, she had always had a fear of cancer and tumors. We worked with Holly through all through junior high and high school trying to help her overcome this obsession with cancer and this fear of tumors, and she just could never seem to get a grip on it. And I told her that night, I said, Holly, I believe God has taken you to this very place where you trust Him the least so you can grow and learn from this. On Sunday night, we gathered one more time in the house and prayed again, and Holly had written something, and she said, you know, I, I want to share this with you and Mom, but she said, God has given me just extraordinary peace in the last 24 hours. She says, I have complete peace about this, that God is in control and I can trust Him in all things. And ladies and gentlemen, we learned that lesson again in our household. And you've learned it. Some of you are in the midst of it right now. You're carrying very heavy burdens upon your heart. And God is teaching you that He can be trusted. He can be trusted in the small things, and He can be trusted in the large things. I submit to you that Abram faced this test of faith, just a common, everyday challenge of life. And Abram's faith was tested. And I see three positive responses on Abram's part. One, there is growth in wisdom. Secondly, in generosity. And third, in insight. That is, in a biblical view of life. First, wisdom. Abram looks out at the land, and he's in a strange land. And I don't think there's any... Any doubt that the, the, the Moses, under inspiration, includes these words that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Chapter 13, verse 7. Now, Abram looks at his situation and he says, we must make a decision. And he says, we must divide and separate. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm in a strange land surrounded by the enemies of God, you know what I want to do? Stick close together. There's strength in numbers. I was a firefighter. We had this principle that we lived by on the fire ground. It was called the buddy system. And uh, this standard operating procedure was that you'd never go into uh, a dangerous situation without someone with you, especially inside a a smoke-filled building. Because if you have a buddy with you, your chances of survival increase a hundredfold. So it doesn't make sense to separate and go it alone. And yet Abram sees this situation here and says, we must divide. If we're going to survive, we must divide. There's wisdom here on Abram's part. His faith has been tested once again and again. And Abram rises to the challenge. And it's godly wisdom. It's the skill and the art of living. And then there is generosity. But you guys, I think one of the fruits of growing faith in God is Generosity. It's this attitude that all that we have really belongs to God. And we freely give of ourselves and of our possessions for other people. It's this willingness to yield our rights to others. It's generosity. In Egypt, Abram had chosen for himself. But back in Canaan, he was content to live, to leave the choices with God and to trust God for provisions in his life. And so refusing to assert his own rights, and he had those rights as the patriarch of the family. Abram yields to Lot, and he says, you choose first, and I'll choose second. And guys, I tell you what, there's a principle of stewardship here in these scriptures. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 2, 
For the first time, wealth is mentioned in the Bible. Abrams had become very wealthy. And here's the principle of stewardship. Here's the challenge for us. When was the last time that you put yourself in a situation where you had to trust God completely with your life? I think the difference between Abram and Lot was Abram possessed great wealth, but it seems that the wealth had possessed Lot. So we see a a growth in faith and a growth in wisdom, a growth in generosity. And then there's insight on the part of Abram. Do you see this? He says to Abram, or to Lot, his brother, or his nephew, he says, We can't allow this division to occur among us, for we are brothers. Now this is key, guys. Abram says to Lot, we are brothers. What he's saying to Lot is, we must remember who we are. Now, in reality, Lot was not his brother. Lot was his nephew. But they were a part of the same nation, this young nation of Israel, the people of God. And Abram is saying to Lot, we are brothers. He recognized that we could not afford, they could not afford to engage in quarrels in the midst of a pagan world. For we are the people of God and we must live like it. Abram recognized who he was in God. They belonged to another kingdom. There was something more at stake than profit lines and watered plains of Egypt or the fields of, uh, of, uh, of the promised land. There's more at stake than houses or assets or health and comfort. The real issue before us as the people of God is ultimately the glory of God. So there is insight on the part of Abram. When I was traveling in China a few weeks ago, you know, I traveled in two weeks' time, we traveled over 20,000 miles. Now, most of that was by air, of course, but a lot of our travel was done by bus. And when we would arrive in the different cities in inland China, uh, they had hired um, people movers, vans, to meet us at the airport. And these Chinese drivers would drive us around to our appointments and where we, the things we needed to see in that particular city. And, and um, we had with us this little uh, girl from Hong Kong. Her name was Kat. And she was our really the, the brains behind this whole two-week trip in China. She had organized everything, and she was bilingual. She spoke English very well, but she often, well, she had to speak Mandarin a lot to our hired drivers. And so Kat would always sit in the front of the bus. Now, guys, uh, I grew rather impatient quickly riding in the bus because... It took so long to get from one place to the next, especially in some of those large cities. The traffic was unbelievable. And, and uh, I was anxious to get to the next place. And so we would ride in the bus and Cat would be sitting in the front. And, and occasionally I started, I'd sit in the back and I'd holler to the front. I'd say, hey, Cat, how much longer? And she very politely would turn around and speak in English. And she would say, oh, Richard, I wish I could talk like Cat. She's just a... Just a beautiful little girl. She would say, oh, Richard, she said, uh, an hour and 15 minutes and we'll be at our next location. A little bit later, I would holler to the front of the bus, Cat, are we there yet? Oh, no, not there yet, but we're almost there, Richard. And so that became kind of a regular thing in our group. And, and it started becoming a little humorous. And I would holler to the front of the bus on the next trip, Cat, how much longer? And everybody on the bus would laugh, you know, and Cat would turn around and just her kind expression and, and her sweet spirit, she would 
she would tell me how much longer and where we had to stop before we got to our final destination. But after about seven, eight days of that, Cat grew weary. <laughs> I'd say, Cat, how much longer? She started answering this way. One time she turned around and she said, Richard, I've got some bad news. We're not going to get there today. <laughs> Can you imagine that, guys? Can you imagine going on a journey and you're not going to get there today? You're not going to get there tomorrow? In fact, your whole life is going to be a journey. But know this. We're headed to the one destination in the world worth going to. My last night, the, the last stop for us was back to Hong Kong. We had scheduled one final day on this trip so that we could do some shopping in Hong Kong to buy some souvenirs to bring home some gifts to our family. So we spent that Friday shopping in Hong Kong. What a massive city, so crowded with people. And that night... We went up on Victoria's Peak, the highest point in Hong Kong. And we looked out that night, on that clear night, we looked out over that harbor in Hong Kong. And I got a picture. We're going to put this picture on the screen. I think it's coming up in just a second. I took this picture. I wish it was a little bit clearer. But I stood on Victoria's Peak that night, and I looked over the city of Hong Kong. And everywhere you looked, skyscrapers, massive buildings, lights in the harbor, and the ships and the boats coming in and out of the harbor. And I stood up on Victoria's Peak that night looking out over that beautiful scene. And I think it's probably one of the most awesome sights I've ever seen in my life. And I stood there and this is the thought that came to my mind. If human hands can build this, can you imagine what the promised land's going to be like? Can you imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will be like when we see it for the first time? If that's what we can accomplish with human hands, can you imagine what God is going to do for us? And we're on that journey, ladies and gentlemen. We're headed like Abram, like the people of old in the Old Testament. We're on a journey to the promised land. And Moses is writing these stories. He's, he's writing this, these stories to this new generation of Israel who has left Egypt and they're headed to a land they had never seen before. Oh, they, they knew about the land. They knew that Abram, their forefather, had been there and yet he had never fully possessed the land. And you read, the, you read the stories. In fact, you turn to Exodus 3 and you read about this story of this, this journey that the new Israel now, leaving Egypt, is on. And it's a rather simple journey. It really has two parts to it. You read Exodus chapter 3. God says to, to Moses that I'm going to take you out of one land into another. Out of one to another. Just two simple parts to the journey. Out of and to. And if you really, if you look in your Bible... If you have one of those, you know, the collection of maps in the back of your Bible, if you look back there and you look at the, the land of Egypt and Canaan, it's probably one of the first maps in your Bible, and you look, there's the Sinai Peninsula. And if you measure the distance there, it's only about 200 miles from Egypt to Canaan. Guys, I ran 26 miles once in four and a half hours. <laughs> you can... Even in those days, you could walk 200 miles with your camels and your herds. You could get there in two or three weeks. 
It's really not a large journey. That's the direct route, right across the Sinai Peninsula. But God had another way in mind. The text says that God did not lead Israel by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, that was a shorter route. He led them south. For he knew that if my people faced war with the Philistines, they would become discouraged and possibly turn back to Egypt. Now, can you imagine the initial response of the people of Israel? Moses packs their bags and they head out and they go south. South's not only in the wrong direction. South leads them to the desert. The Mennonites have a saying. We are living in the time of God's patience. It's true. Ladies and gentlemen, why do you think God takes us on the long journey? I think one of the reasons is to patiently teach us of his faithfulness. I call it the long road of sanctification. Now, you can sign me up for sanctification. I want to be a part of that. But I don't want to go the long way. Like you, I want to go the put me on the Sinai interstate, the short, the direct route. That's the way I want to go, but not the long way. And you know something, guys? God was perfectly able to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But the issue was Israel didn't believe that yet. They needed to live long enough to know that God could be trusted. That he was a faithful God. Thursday night, Carl and I went to the Orpheum to see Joseph. This is about our fourth time seeing it. She just loves that particular Broadway show. And it, it is a, it's a great show. It's very colorful. The choreography and the music is just a, it's a wonderful. We've seen it in Chicago before. We've seen it two or three times. That's, I think, our second time seeing it here in Memphis. And, and we enjoyed the story of Joseph. In fact, our own Casey Greer was in the cast. And, uh, boy, she played a, her part very well. It was just a wonderful night. It's the story, you know the story of Joseph, don't you? Guys, you know, the book of Genesis, if you, if you laid out the Old Testament chronologically, did you know the book of Genesis covers about half of the Old Testament here, uh, period, history? The life of Joseph covers one-third of the book of Genesis. It's interesting to me. I mean, that the, the, the inspired writers would spend that much time of one book that covers over half the period of Israel's, of Old Testament history, they would spend that much time focusing upon the life of one man, Joseph. One man. And we watched Joseph on Thursday night, and I left there, you know, and I re- realized again that Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, as, as good as the Broadway show is, they missed the whole point of the life of Joseph. It's not about Joseph's ingenuity. It's not about Joseph's endurance. Life of Joseph is really about the faithfulness of God. That God could be trusted. He could be trusted in the large things and he can be trusted in the small things. Someone once said, so aptly said this. I love what they said. They said it took one night to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's the journey we're on, that God is going to do whatever it takes to get Egypt out of us and to convince us, very patiently teach us, that he is a God that can be trusted in the small things like car trouble, 
transmission problems, in the large things like tumors and life expectancy. There's one more thing. Genesis 12 and 13, this, these stories here in Genesis, you know, they're, really, they're really an introduction to Christ. Because the ultimate expression, the ultimate realization of God's faithfulness to man comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. For all men are faced with this one ultimate issue. Where will we spend eternity? And the Bible teaches us to see the promised land, we must first come through Jesus Christ. We can trust God with our very soul through Jesus Christ. He is a faithful God. He can be trusted. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for truth that is so relevant to our lives. Wherever we might be this morning, for those this morning in our midst who are facing just small issues of life, the challenges of the marketplace tomorrow, the challenges of business or family or parenthood, motherhood, fatherhood, those issues, in those issues God can be trusted. You can be trusted. In the large issues of life, things that really, Father, cause us to step out on faith where we must see the face of God, you can be trusted. We thank you, too, this morning for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer of our souls. We pray this morning for those who may be in our midst who are facing that ultimate issue that question, can God be trusted with my eternal destiny? And may they find the answer in Jesus Christ this morning, in whose name we pray.